who wants to be told to listen to their kids? Mm. No one. No. No. Not a popular message. But today, we're going to share with you what we've learned from this very difficult transition, what it will cost potentially if you don't, and how you can do it. Stay tuned. All right, welcome to episode 55 of the Fight for Together podcast. I'm Ben. And I'm Cammy. And we are parents trying to figure this out, and we live our lives outside of the box a little bit so that hopefully you don't have to. <laughs> I just made that up. Uh, you can pick and choose. Okay, so today's topic for episode 55 is called Just Listen, Stop Giving Kids Advice. And I want to go through a transformation that we have been through in our lifetime that I think was probably made a little bit more dramatic because of our religious upbringing. Mm. Yeah. But I don't think it's just a religious people that deal with this at all. No. Um, so the old belief that we had was like, it sounds weird to even like, say this because it's pretty it's like harsh embarrassing almost yeah but it's what we believed was that adults have wisdom and kids need it meaning they don't have wisdom in fact when we were in the biblical communities we were going so far as to say like and this is language from the bible like kids were foolish kids were fools like they were basically like little dummies making a bunch of mistakes Mm-hmm. which is a really interesting narrative. I mean, I think I think that view impacts people in general a lot more than we realize. At least it did with me. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> not only are they foolish, they're sinners. So you got like yeah, a double whammy. So this idea was that, okay, kids are kind of like, I mean, and there's all these examples, right? Like kids should be seen and not heard which kind of comes from this world that says, like, you have nothing to offer me. Adults are better than children. Yeah, and we know everything. So it's going to be this, like, one-way avenue of of conversation where I tell you what to do and you confirm that you understand it. If not, Mm -hmm. I'll explain it to you a different way. Yeah. And what this led to in terms of tactics was a lot of repetition, Um, so, you know, you say something, uh, like, Hey, um, trying to think of an example, uh, don't eat candy and then kids like eat candy. So then you repeat it and you repeat it like a ton of times, like don't eat candy, don't eat candy. And you kind of think the more you say it, the more the kids are learning it. But once again, it's very one way in terms of its communication. So I I should have done this ahead of time, but I'm trying to think if we have any good stories from this time period that you can think of. Um, I just remember in in our parenting years, I mean, our oldest is 19, so now we're talking, you know, 16 years ago. Dove, our oldest, would get, like, busted doing something, or she'd make Mm -hmm. a decision that was, like, we considered a bad decision. 
And it was like, basically you like sit her down and you like start this monologue that went something like this. Yeah. This is what you did that was wrong. I think I don't have like a concrete example, but I know that what happened a lot is at some point around three or four, the kids started to lie. And that was with our belief system back then. That was a really big deal. And we want, we like just wanted the line to stop, but we weren't inquis like curious as to why is this um, little person lying? Or if we did ask that question, we already knew the answer. We're like, oh, because they're a sinner. That's why they're deceitful. You know, they're deceiving themselves. Or because they're just not taking responsibility. Yeah, it was all super negatively charged reasons. Um, yeah, so that that was interesting to me to think back that we never. Which is interesting because there's environments where kids don't lie. Right, that is. I mean, if you think about it the other way, another example, you know, sometimes in school you see kids cheating and you're like, well, of course kids cheat. Kids are always going to cheat. Mm-hmm. They don't. There's actually environments that you can create where kids don't cheat, where they don't feel the need to. Mm. They don't feel Threatened. like they're being measured and their self-worth is tied to a number yeah. that they need to not only not learn something, but fake as if they do know it. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not against um, telling the truth or testing or anything like that, but I do think as parents, we can, if we want to, get curious and ask the question, are we being complicit in creating an environment that is making it harder to tell the truth, basically? Mm -hmm. If the kids know that we don't actually want to hear their truth, they're going to tell us what they think they want us to hear. Or they're going to get super, super busted or punished for telling the truth. Yeah. I mean, they're not dummies. (laughs) They're like, oh, I'm not going to tell the truth then. So in my story, and we've talked about this a lot on this podcast, just because it was so revolutionary for me, you know, this was a model of church that I went to and parenting that we had where kind of the guy up top, that's the most qualified, often the most oldest kind of tells those beneath them how to live, how to read the Bible, how to be a good person, how to make money, um, how to fold your underwear, whatever it is. <clears throat> and you don't really question that. Um, you know, like I said, kids should be seen and not heard. There was all sorts of other like kind of obedience edicts that we heard about honoring your father and mother and things like that. Um, so I kind of got it in my head that there's like, a better way to live that older people know and and that there was a always a right way to do something and that and it kind of expanded too because like this wasn't just how i saw my kids this started to expand to like my friendships like my friends would come to me with a problem what would i do i would like give them advice mm-hmm. so um about 10 years ago or longer i went to 12-step group which is like the equivalent of Alcoholics Anonymous, where they have these circles of addicts um, sitting in a circle. And what's interesting is with addicts, like, you know, just by showing up to a 12-step group, it's kind of like you're kind of admitting some degree of moral bankruptcy. (laughs) 
Like you're not claiming to be an upstanding person. You're kind of like hanging out with like the losers of the losers. You're not a pastor. Yeah, exactly. So no one really wants your advice anyways, (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of nice. So anyways, they had this rule called no crosstalk. And the majority of the meeting would be people sharing in the circle with fairly limited rules and guidance. Like, you know, it wasn't like share your high and the low of the day. It was like kind of checking in. Usually um, people could share like an update on their week or how they had failed or how they had struggled or how they had succeeded. Um, And everyone, no matter how lame the person was or how much they had screwed up, or how shocking. It probably wasn't shocking, but... The only appropriate response in the context of the group was, thank you for sharing, sharing, no matter what. You don't have to say it, but you couldn't say anything else. You couldn't be like, hey, have you read uh, this book? Like, Or, hey, uh, have you thought about stopping? You should stop. <laughs> <laughs> Which it just sounds so dumb. Yeah. So even though there was this context where people like blatantly, quote unquote, needed advice... None was given. And what I observed from my time in these groups was that the group took on this power where, one, people felt like they could now share anything. I mean, it really opened people up. Mm-hmm. My time in these groups, like sharing certain things in my religious communities, it was like pulling teeth. And people were vague, and they were they would like hem and haw, especially if it was like a confession. Um, here people Mm -hmm. loved sharing. I mean, sometimes I was nervous just because there's a public speaking aspect, but for the most part to be able to unburden yourself and not feel alone and have all these other people who can relate to some of the darkest parts of your week Mm -hmm. was really a huge gift. Mm. Yeah. So it opened up the sharing and I think it, it brought people closer together. And made people not feel as alone. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you're not given advice, it forces you to... Really listen. <laughs> yeah. And to think, yeah. you know, because you kind of step down from that role. And now you're like, yeah. we're all just sitting in a circle. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you're forced to focus on how you're similar instead of how you're different. Like when I'm giving advice to my kids, like let's say they screwed up at something and I'm like, they mowed the lawn wrong. And I'm like, listen, this is how you need to mow the lawn. Or, uh, you know, this is how you need to operate with your boyfriend or girlfriend. It kind of puts me in this place where I am different from you because I know how to operate with boyfriends and girlfriends, which is an absolute joke. (laughs) Not in 2020. You don't. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay. So not only, so this is where I first saw um, this rule, no crosstalk, or like really what, how powerful listening could be instead of giving advice. Hmm. And I think there's another more like doom and gloom type story that we've experienced with family members more pertaining to your family, which is your current relationship with your parents. Mm-hmm. So I know I'm kind of springing this on you because I've planned this topic and Kim doesn't know maybe where I'm going from it. Maybe I'll, I'll get it started and then you can take it, which 
The main thing I've observed for me, but I think it's more painful and impactful for you because you're their daughter, is you no longer share your feelings with your parents. Yeah. And I don't know when that stopped, but I think it was a very early age that I didn't feel safe sharing the deepest parts of who I was. I mean, if I were to say an, an age, I'd say probably by the time I was eight, you know, I probably knew better. Well, and we're talking about the deepest parts of who you were, but as of now, oh, yeah, you talk to day. them maybe once every six months, mm-hmm. and you will barely talk about it's the weather. Very surfacey. Now, and, now I don't want to get into yeah. blaming them, yeah, because the, this I don't see it as a productive venture, right? But to get into your feelings about how you felt in terms of being listened to or heard, mm-hmm. I think there's a direct correlation there. Yeah, I mean, I think as a kid, I felt pretty alone, but now as an adult, I that part is sad to me, and I can only be so close to them not very close at all and as an adult i have other relationships that fill that need but it's still um really sad and a huge loss not to have that from your parents and the reason why this is so important to me is because that's my worst fear Mm. i think when you view kids as like less than and that it's our job to primarily be the speakers slash advice givers. Or, and or, you see your children as that they feel, fulfill your needs. Which I do think that was something that I experienced with my mom especially. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that like when they're insecure or unstable in some ways so that they lean on you in a way that's not even it's not appropriate when you're a child but even when you're an adult it's like it'd be like two uh people one's leaning on the other one like way too heavily i think that can also really inhibit and what i've seen is if you're not treating your child with respect when they're two you're probably not going to start when they're four you're probably not going to start when they're six you can learn. I you mean, we, we well, learned. No, what I mean is you can change. But if you don't yeah. change, if, if someone doesn't fundamentally change, <clears throat> yeah. the way you treat a six-year-old is probably the same way you're going to treat a 16-year-old, yeah. which is probably the same way you're going to treat a 26-year-old, which is what I observed with yeah. you and your relationship because they were mm-hmm. kind of like, right. I mean, I wasn't around when you were a kid, but the way that they were talking to us when they were 26, it was like, respect your elders, listen to those with wisdom, um, you know. Right. listen to our advice and i was like oh i mean it hadn't changed yeah. you know the roles were still super important mm-hmm. and we yeah. didn't um they weren't beneficial to us anymore so anyways one of my worst fears when you know this channel is called fight for together because we're trying to explore and discuss the systems and mechanisms that basically provide for the best long-term relationships. Mm -hmm. And for me, if I don't learn to listen to my kids and value their opinion, Mm 
Mm-hmm. One, I think I'm missing out. But two, the thing that first put on my radar, especially with watching your family, mm-hmm. I think we're dooming our relationship to either small talk, like mm-hmm. our kids are not going to share what's on their actual hearts, or if they if we really don't feel valued or heard, they're really just going to cut us out and go to people that will hear them. Yeah. Which the evidence I would toss out there is like everyone's life who's listening. And I would ask this question, what do you feel comfortable talking to your parents about? And my guess is if you feel comfortable sharing a lot with them, it's because you feel valued and heard and listened. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, I wouldn't be surprised at all if it's because you don't feel valued and listened to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so what sparked this conversation is um, this book that I recently published called Unleash Your Family, Chaos to Creativity in One Week. And I want to read a few notes um, on page 20, from page 24. Um, so I'm just going to read this. Uh, you want to read it, actually? Sure. Starting there. There are times and places for advice. Early on in our parenting, we gave advice often, but we found that much of it was not... Hold on. Sorry. But we found that much of it was not effective. The kids were not hearing it. They were not internalizing it. Our conclusion was that most of the advice we were giving given was for us to feel better instead of what was in the kids' best interests. With kids, it doesn't matter if you're right, if you are not heard. While it felt counterproductive, we found that often it was best to just listen, just like you would a friend. What started to happen was that our kids started to come to us for advice, and when they did, we knew they were far more likely to appreciate and implement our words. Keep going. Is that there? I haven't read this yet. Yeah, let's stop for now. Okay. And let's all share what spoke to us from that section. What? Yeah. I don't know where you're going with that. I'm saying, oh, well, let me look did, at it. did that hit you in the heart anywhere in a way that you'd like to share? Man, you give me this blank look as if... Um. Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting looking looking back at how much we would just talk to our kids and we didn't even really care if they were internalizing it. We just were like, this is what a good parent does. They say all these things. Um, But I I think so much of that was to make myself feel good. Like, oh, okay, well, I did my job. It's their job to listen. And if they're not going to listen, then they're not doing their job. Yeah, isn't isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I think of so many instances where I think it's subconscious, but that's what I did a lot of. I mean, even just this very simple, like, there's a science here. When you raise your voice at your kids, they like shut down. They get like defensive. They they'll hear you less. But yet in my mind as the parent, I'm like, the louder I am, the yeah. more I'm going to be heard. Yeah. So the kid's like not hearing it. And what do I do? 
raise my voice. It's like, I mean, that's the instinct. It's the exact opposite. If I, if my goal is to be heard, yeah, then I should do the exact opposite. Some of it's letting off steam, right? You're angry that you're not being heard. So your instinct then is to raise your voice out of anger. Oh, totally. And I think, Mm -hmm. I think we should be honest about why we're doing this kind of stuff because a lot of it has to do with positioning. Well, and like you said, feeling like a good parent Mm -hmm. and showing the kid who the boss is. Right. But so if that's your goal, then I think these things are great tools to accomplish that. Yeah. They kind of say, I'm the boss. Um, I'm great or something. It's like you're you're the animal where the feathers like get really big. You're like, <laughs> like watch out, kid. You're puffing yourself up. <laughs> um, but if your goal is something else, if your goal is actually relationship, mm-hmm. so there's this, you know, in this book I talk about the difference between attachment like versus being a cop. And I think, you know, I think we should talk about what it's like to be a cop for a while. Like cops are great well not in this like in the news nowadays it's tough but like we all appreciate having cops around in society for the most part but no one really wants to be friends with an on-duty cop like we keep them at arm's length or like you know when a cop comes up like drives behind me in the freeway yeah i like hate it we see cops go by our street all the time and i'm fine with them going by the street but if they were to stop in front of my house I'm and just like, park there yeah i'm like oh shit like what is that cop doing there go away <laughs> like, now a lot of times i think we are our parenting method very naturally the whole like louder thing it's kind of like you know you yeah. cops are like step away sir and then you don't do it what do they do they like, pull out their baton or they write you a ticket they ask es- they escalate the yeah. situation we saw this in that movie Phone Booth recently where you have two cops and one of them, maybe one of them was like a detect, I don't know what he was, but one of them was like already just like charge in there in this really charged situation. And the other guy was just more, no, let me talk to him, you know, and he actually ended up winning him over. But there was, I, th- I want to say this was from Alfie Cohen or maybe it was Gabber Monte. Um Maybe it was Gabber, but he said that if a a kid isn't doing what you want him to do, maybe it's because there's not enough attachment between you and your kid. And I thought about that, actually. I thought about that with particularly with um, Seven, my 15-year-old. And I've noticed, I've kind of tried to like hone in on that more. And I've noticed the more I kind of engage with him positively the more clout i have to engage with him negatively if that's you know how it's not that binary but the more clout i have to say hey you didn't do this thing and i really want you to do this thing and he's just i could tell his attitude changes when you know just five minutes ago him and i were joking about something you know we had a we had a point where we connected in a more positive way and and so it's like work work smarter, not harder. It's like, oh, maybe maybe he's just another human being like I am. And if 
the practically speaking, the only type of relationship I have with my mom is she's just ordering me around and telling me what to do. I'm not going to really want to do it. But if I have other levels of relationship with her, other aspects where, you know, we're joking about this movie we saw or, um, isn't that funny what your sister did or whatever. Um, he, it does, I think it does really, really help. I've noticed the dynamic. I like that. I mean, I think that is really important because I don't know. Once again, going back to the cop thing, a cop's job is not to have a relationship with you. It's Mm -hmm. to enforce a moral code and therefore the methods fit that. And as a parent, I think early on, I thought my job was to enforce a moral code, which is going to compromise the relationship. Right. But if my goal is to have a relationship. Yeah. Then it's. Then I need to stop acting like a cop. So many of the methods that I know and are familiar to me, they're cop-like methods. They're escalation. They use violence. They use power. Yeah. They don't use, you know, what you just described as attachment or Mm -hmm. friendship. Mm Mm-hmm or vulnerability right so my problem with these things are one i don't think they work good long term uh when at least like when you solely depend on that dynamic well you start seeing it break down the older your kid gets you know um i've i've we've seen it um we have four teenagers now and um it teenagers don't (laughs) care (laughs) I mean, they just, they care, but not at a level my four-year-old cares. You know, if I, if I just start, if I raise my voice with my four-year-old or if I am visibly frustrated with him, he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And to the point where I'm like, I feel bad. You know, I feel like I'm manipulating him. Um, but if I were to do that with my 15-year-old, he'd just be like, what's your problem? <laughs> you know, teenagers can get their validation. Elsewhere. elsewhere yeah and so it yeah i do think like if it's working now for you and i say working in quotation marks then i do think that there's a timestamp on that but what one of the things i wrote about in this book that you read talks about when you give advice a lot sometimes um it's just ignored and all you can really do is escalate and get louder but what, one of the things we've noticed as we've pulled back giving advice from mm-hmm. the kids is now, I mean, I can think of two or three examples this week where our kids came to us and asked us for advice, mm-hmm. which advice when it's actually, it's just like there's this learning phenomenon that when you care about something, you'll actually retain it. Whereas if you're being forced to learn it, like... No, all the force in the world can't make you care. Mm-hmm. It can't make you like, you're like, fine, I'll take the test, but then I'll forget it the second I walk away. And I think as educators and as parents, sometimes we're like, okay, fine, that's good enough. Because mm-hmm. if we're doing it to pat ourselves on the back, we're like, great, I did my job. Yeah. I don't care if you fail at life, but I was a good parent at least. Yeah. But that sucks. I mean, it's, I think it's so much better to, ha- to when we let up on the advice giving, to have our kids actually start to, care about how to live life and i i do think older people have some wisdom that's unique Mm -hmm. but we what i noticed was 
we would like drown it out with our, there's a lot of things we know. And then there's actually a lot of things we don't know. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you act like, you know, everything kids are smart and they're yeah. like, stop telling me how to live my life. And then we actually have some good stuff to say, but we've already lost our voice. Yeah, and they're dealing with a completely different culture than we dealt with as kids. So there's there's so much we don't know. Um, the other thing I've noticed in terms of like long term was when you position yourself as like the ultimate kind of like advice giver, the one with the answers, whether mm-hmm. you see yourself or not that way, but when you act like that by telling your kids what to do, I think it creates a myth that you almost have to like perpetuate. Like you have to feel like you have the answers. And then when you kind of screw up or make some of the mistakes your kids make, perhaps, Mm -hmm. like I think about this, like when I'm on social media, I'm telling my kids like get off social media. And then they walk into my office and I'm like supposed to be writing my book. Right. And Mm -hmm. I like have Facebook open. So then I need to like close Facebook. Right. Which works kind of okay for a short term, but I'm going to get caught. Yeah. Right. They know like the kids are smart. They're not idiots. Mm -hmm. They know what goes on. And eventually they're going to be disappointed when they find out that I'm kind of just like them instead of this shining role model beacon of virtue. Just like when you find out, you know, it's no secret now, but it was that like cops aren't always good. (laughs) A lot of people thought they were and like at least white folks, maybe not (laughs) black folks, but yeah. Um, we thought that cops, you know, when I was a kid, I thought cops did the right thing and were right. there to help me and could be trusted. And then one day you find out like, oh shit, that guy's just there for a paycheck. He covers his own ass. He has all, he's human and has all these prejudices that maybe he doesn't even know about, but they come out. And probably got the job because he wanted a valid way to extract violence against people that he, like, he was really beat so maybe as a little kid too. the cops are actually the worst. Oh, yeah. So it's like... <laughs> You know, but you don't know that as a kid. And I feel like as a uh, parent, we kind of maintain this myth yeah. that I have the answer. And um, and then someday we get found out for the frauds that we are. Yeah. But once you can accept you're a fraud, like the sooner you can just accept it and like show your kids, I think... Well, that, you don't need to be a fraud. I know. I, I, I use that word, but yeah. like... The, the sooner you can really just let your hair down around your kids and be honest with yourself and with them, not only does it make your life easier, I think, but it actually, I think, improves your relationship with them. Because yeah. they know you're human, even when you try to act like you're superhuman. Well, not only do they know it, I think they prefer it. Yeah. I mean, in a way, having a hero is nice. Yeah. Having Lance Armstrong be this beacon of United States power was awesome until it wasn't. And deep down, we all kind of want to know Lance Armstrong is just like us. I mean, besides we villainized him, I guess. But Well, and the longer you perpetuate the superhuman thing with your kids, the bigger the letdown it's going to be once they figure out you're not. So one of the things I really appreciated was you know you had your birthday recently and we filmed the kids talking about your birthday mm-hmm. what they appreciate about you and numerous kids i think three maybe four they all said that one of the things that they appreciate about you the most is that they can tell you anything 
like of all the things that they could have said, like you buy me shit or you. You're really strong. <laughs> yeah. your You're ta- really smart. Your tattoos are really <laughs> badass. The thing that they settled on communicating to you was that you listen to them, that you, I think, don't give them advice when they don't want it. And I give them acceptance, I guess. I think that's what yeah. I'm saying. So I want to get to the solution here that um, is like just a suggestion of one thing you could try. You want to read the last mm-hmm. thing, would you? This is from the book again. Yep. Unleash your family. Creating spaces that are focused on listening instead of fixing also allowed us parents to be honest about our struggles and successes instead of feeling like we needed to be a hero or example. I know this type of parenting is not natural for some, and if it seems impossible, keep on reading. Well, they can't. Do you want me to keep on reading? (laughs) Well, you'll have to buy the book (laughs) if you don't already have it. So the suggestion, what's helped for us, just like, you know, I don't think this can be like all of life necessarily as a parent. It hasn't been realistic for us at least. But the 12-step group I went to is one hour a week. And that one hour, Mm -hmm. you just knew you could talk and say whatever and no one would boss you around or tell you what to do. And what I noticed is that one hour actually went on to change my relationship with all those people. Because when we left afterwards to go hang out, it wasn't like we just were like, oh, now I can give you all the advice I was thinking about. (laughs) You know, it kind of like set the tone for a lot of our relationship. Hmm. And for a lot of years, our family had a 12-step group for our family. Yeah. Where we did readings and it was just a time for people to share what they were struggling with. Mm -hmm. With no crosstalk. So kids could say, I ate a full jar of candy. And oh my gosh, as a parent, I want to be like, uh, did you have a stomachache? <laughs> like, how'd that work out for you? You're paying for your dentist bills. <laughs> yeah. Or like, you know, slip some like lesson that says, basically, you little turd that has no self-control, you should feel like crap because I have a ton of self-control and are so much more awesome than you Mm. i mean which is all or i feel like crap when i go eat the thing candy so i want you to do the same oh yeah (laughs) but we didn't we just listened Mm -hmm. and the only reason i think i was able to do this was because i saw it work with so many other people yeah i mean and once again guys like all we're kind of saying too is like you can give the advice but if it doesn't work anyways like what's the actual point point? and on some level we have to look and see like is it actually working mm-hmm. or is it just to make ourselves feel better yeah i think you have to want your kids to share their heart with you enough like that has to win over you feeling like a good parent somehow and I think after a while, you feeling like a good parent actually changes definition. Now, I, I, I do feel like a good parent when I'm listening. 
But I didn't always feel that way. And even now, sometimes I'm like, uh, what do, do I say something? Do you know, it's not like, it's not always cut and dry. Um, but I think to have a space where you're practicing that with your kids, I think is super valuable, especially if it doesn't come natural, which I'd say for most people in our culture, it probably doesn't come natural to just listen to your kids. Um, but yeah, I don't, I, I, that's definitely one of the biggest things I came away with when I did 12 steps for a couple years was I don't need to fix anyone. Even your kids, even my kids, even myself. But if I am going to fix someone, I'm the only one that I can really fix. If you want to use that word, I don't really like that word, but I'm the only one that can change. I can't change anyone else. But yeah, I mean, to believe that about your kids is really controversial, I think, um, against good parenting advice. <laughs> Ironic, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> so way, the way we currently practice this is at our family dinner, we share highs and lows. And it's kind of like the same framework where we just don't. <laughs> uh yeah it is the same framework although i'd say it's not as strict we, and we maybe try. we need it to be a little more stricter because we tend to roast certain family members i think everyone kind of gets roasted the same probably yeah that well I guess, maybe you more than uh yeah i'd say there's some of us that get roasted a little more <laughs> than others but i mean i think it's all in good i also think though the family members have gotten stronger to a point where they, everyone kind of knows how to hold their own. And no crosstalk doesn't mean to be a rule of complete silence. That's not the point. The point is everyone ha everyone's opinion and feelings are equally valid and valuable. Yeah, because if you have a family member who isn't sharing because of lack of confidence or because they're afraid of what someone else might say, that's the type of person that needs, I think, that environment where, you know, it's it's completely safe for them to share. So the final thing I wanted to talk about was getting kids to share vulnerable things. In a way, as a friend, like wanting a long-term relationship with my kids, mm -hmm. one of my number one hopes is that we can be somewhat vulnerable with each other. Um, at least as much as they want, where we're not just talking about the weather and we can share some deep things that we feel and desire and want and are dealing with. Yeah. And there's a very simple trick that we have found that is the only thing I know of that you can do to get kids to be vulnerable. And that is... You have to be vulnerable. You have to do it first. Yeah. I mean, all these, like, I've, I've done it a ton, and I've heard it done a ton, where it's like, you look at the kid, and you're like, why don't you share with me, like, right now? Like, how are you feeling? What are you thinking? Like, what's going on? What's hard? Like, why don't you talk to me? Or you feel hurt that they're not. And you're trying to, like, pull it out of them. But the fact of the matter is, they've never been modeled that it's okay to feel like a failure. Mm -hmm. Or that it's okay to 
wrestle with these feelings. And what I learned in 12-step groups is that adults, grown-ass adults, men and women, construction workers and lawyers and cops and firemen and presidents of the United States all have feelings too, and we all struggle with managing them. This is what made Mr. Rogers so brilliant was because he just didn't forget what it was like to be a kid. And, and he talked to adults the same way he talked to kids, which is just saying, life is hard. Yeah. When you're disappointed, it's hard. And kids have disappointment. And he didn't demonize emotions. No. And adults have disappointment just the same. Feelings. I might not be as disappointed about a lollipop. Yeah. I'm, I'm disappointed over like, bigger things but who's to say my bigger things are more important than your things right so i know it sounds weird but if we can't figure it out i don't think we should expect our kids to figure it out which is and this is the phenomenon as we've started to become vulnerable and share we've noticed that our kids have started to do it the same up to the level that we do it yeah because it feels safe. Like I shared, hey, I failed this week. And they look around and they see how everyone responds to me. How does everyone respond? Okay, well, they all accept him and and you know, no one's rejecting him, which is one of our deepest fears. And then they decide if it's worth it for them to do it mm-hmm. based upon what they see. But if they never hear anyone else sharing it, you'd be crazy, I think, as a kid to start bringing stuff up like that. Crazy or desperate. Yeah. Well... Yeah, but even a lot of desperate kids will go elsewhere. Yeah. You know, with that desperation. Right. All right. Well, that's it for today, you guys. Um, so the the charge or the challenge to think through is in addition to the advice giving that we do in parenting is to create a space where you as an adult can just to practice to just listen whether it's 10 minutes a week or an hour a week or whatever it is. And I think in addition to the advice giving muscle, we have found that we have learned a lot about ourselves and our kids. And I think developed tools for a much healthier long-term relationship. Um, Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, the son of a bitch is a lot of times when you're around someone that's giving you advice all the time, you don't really know how to put your finger on it and vocalize it and go to them and say, say, Hey, I don't like this. This makes me feel uncomfortable. You'll just avoid them. You know, you'll just be like, Oh, I just got fired. Who am I going to call? Not that person. I'm going to call this other person. We don't even know why. Well, and I think it, one thing that comes out with a relationship where, someone is always the advice giver you you know even when it's not asked for is there's just this feeling of this other person is looking down on me because if they always feel like they need to give you advice they must think wow this person like really needs my help you know um so then it's just it's not an equal footing at that point yeah and no one wants to be a project, I don't think, for their whole life. No. Yeah, I think that's good. All right. Well, guys, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, I'd love to hear what are your thoughts on this. Is this something that you've done? 
Is this something that's really hard for you? Have you experienced success or failures in these areas? Or what are you doing to expand the long-term relationship with your kids? So you can leave those on YouTube comments. And we also have, I mean, this is a podcast, so it's available in the audio forms. The book, if you're interested, uh, where we talk about this idea and other ideas is called Unleash Your Family, uh, Chaos to Creativity in One Week. And it's on paperback and ebook, and hopefully it will be on audio soon. It's the process that our family used to go from a week of chaos to communicating and helping each other with our goals, one of which for me was to write this book, which became a number one bestseller in personal transformation, time management and business, and two-hour parenting and relationship short reads. So if any of those topics sound interesting to you, I hope you check it out. The link is in the description. Peace. Thank you for listening to Fight for Together. We'll see you next time.